welcome everybody to the uh, to the Sean Steele uh, Law Firm Podcast Live. I'm, I'm going to start calling it that because that's what this is. Uh, this is a 30-minute uh, session. Uh, it's being recorded both video and audio. We put the audio up on iTunes uh, afterwards in our podcast. We put the video on YouTube, uh, but this is a live uh, podcast. And today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Enrique Vega. He is a vocational economics analyst with Vocational Economics, Inc. He provides expert testimony specific to earning capacity and work-life expectancy for persons with a disability. Uh, he's a board-certified rehabilitation counselor, certified disability management specialist, and a certified rehabilitation counselor by the U.S. Department of Labor, and a vocational expert under contract with Social Security Administration. <gasps> Uh, he also holds a master's degree in applied economics, financial economics from John Hopkins University, in addition to holding a master's of science in counseling with emphasis in rehabilitation counseling from uh, Cal State LA, and an undergraduate degree from Yale in comparative literature. Mr. Vega, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are, uh, we're honored to have you here, and we really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be with us. Um, as you know, this is a uh, this is a format uh, that we 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 have chiropractors come and listen to uh, different people around the world of PI. Um, you and I have worked together on on uh, several cases before, um, and I just want to start out by giving you an opportunity to maybe just explain in basic terms what it is that that a, a voc rehab uh, expert or vocational economics expert does, uh, and how it fits into a PI context. Okay, so uh, a vocational expert uh, typically takes over when all the medical uh, treatment has been provided to a particular individual with a disability. And a vocational expert is normally hired in the context of civil litigation to assess what the person can and cannot do as far as career and work opportunities there are for that person now with some type of impairment. So often it's the case that the person needs to change careers as a result. And that is why you would have to hire somebody with an expertise in careers and also with an expertise in disability to understand what does this injury do to this person's ability to earn a living uh, now that these problems are going to be permanent going forward. So that's why you need uh, somebody uh, who has an expertise in doing job placement for people with disabilities to be able to come in and help you in your case to try to figure out what the person can do next. Now, one important distinction that needs to be made is that this expert, this vocational expert, is not going to function as the vocational counselor. In other words, He's not going to be the one providing services to this individual, but he or she could make a referral for services to another qualified professional so that they can provide the services to this individual because otherwise you're serving in a dual role function. Uh, you're serving both as an expert and also as a provider of services, whereas the expert is only there to assess what the damage is to the person's diminished earning capacity. So overall, that's the role and function of the vocational expert in a personal injury case. Awesome. So, hey, Alex. Yes. I'm here. You are? Yeah. Would you like to introduce yourself? I do. Hi. Hi, guys. Uh, this is uh, 
This is so totally different than what we usually do in these uh, monthly uh, telephonic videos. Uh, we got ourselves a doctor, not of the conventional sort, but somebody that's quite unconventional, that I had to become a, a believer. This was Alex's great idea, uh, but it turns out it's been successful on a number of recent cases. And how this works is that if you have the right set of experts on the right case, the loss of earnings, future loss of earnings, change of lifestyles has an enormous impact on value. Juries eat it up. It's credible. Uh, so it's no longer just about uh, dealing with the physical injuries. Uh, the emotional and the psychiatric injuries are crucial, but also the person's future life of income and how their lifestyle has been changed. So this is why we wanted to bring this opportunity to you. We've had a lot of fun with Dr. Enrique. Uh, Alex has uh, been one of our great, uh, uh, great leaders. So walking us through this path. And I want to, uh, bottom line for me, a chiropractors that have attorneys that work with the right experts get full value. And that means you get 100% paid. Uh, too many of the lawyers give you excuses why you don't get paid and why they have to cut your fees. In fact, I'm, I used to say half, but I think most lawyers think it's typical chiropractors cut their fees and they don't have a good reason for it. If you work up the case, you believe in it and you work hard, you'll make enough money to make sure the chiropractor gets paid 100%. That's our goal, that's our mission, and that's why you're watching this today. This is one of the secrets that you'll never hear from another personal injury law firm. And I want you to understand how PI really works in the, in the big field. Now let's give Alex a chance, make sure he does a good job. Uh, if he's <clears throat> got some areas that he can improve, uh, contact me, seansteel.com. If you got any questions about anything relating to personal injury, contact me, even contact Alex, although his email is a lot longer than mine. Take care, doctors. A, a, a genuine Sean Steele sighting in the wild is, is rare. Uh, but, uh, but he's, he's absolutely right that the, the, the field of, uh, of vocational economics uh, is incredibly valuable for PI cases, and it does inc incredibly increase the odds of the chiropractor's bill getting paid, which obviously uh, is a huge consideration for chiropractors in these cases. I want to I want to get back to what you were talking about. So, so my understanding, and and I I like to think I have a, a, a some insight into this, is that there's there's two sort of components here. There's when when you when you think of loss of earnings, there's past loss earnings, which is the amount of money someone has lost by not working at their job from the date of an accident through till the date of arbitration, mediation, trial. And then there's future lost earnings, which is a projection of the amount of money somebody is likely to lose as a result of their disability uh, stemming from an accident going forward into the rest of their life until they die. Did I get that about right? Uh, just about. That's correct. Uh, there is the first part that you mentioned, which is past loss, which is observable. You can actually see by looking at the person's W-2s um, or taxes that they have had a loss of earnings because usually they miss work when a serious accident occurs. Although not always the case, sometimes they return to work. Um, but the most important component and usually the biggest uh, component is going forward, what's going to happen with that person's uh, work or ability to work. Uh, a lot of the times, based on my experience, they tend to exit the labor market sooner than they would have otherwise because of a serious injury. So if, if a person who's 45, who's expected to work 20 years into the future, ends up only able to work 12, 
those eight years of lost work life is something that has uh, a tremendous uh, impact on that person because they didn't finish out their work life. And so that's something that needs to be considered and their jury of his peers need to consider also and try to compensate him for his uh, disability and, and impairment. And it, just, just to explain the legal side of this, this, this whole discipline really lives in that um, in the evidentiary standard of a civil case. So uh, people are familiar with the criminal evidentiary standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. Your line of work wouldn't fit very well. Your expertise wouldn't fit very well in a beyond a reasonable doubt evidentiary standard. In civil cases, we've got a preponderance of the evidence standard, uh, which means more likely than not. Um, and, and that's just 51% or even 50.01%. A coin flip, slightly more than that. That's, that's the evidentiary standard in a civil case. And so you're able to look at statistics and, and a lot of other very complex math and, and things of that nature, and takes what somebody was doing before, things like their gender, which I know is controversial to, to, to take into consideration now, but that was one of the factors, their uh, zip code where they lived, uh, their, the industry, their level of ex- education, to just to name a couple, and project out into the future based on actuarial tables and work-life expectancies, how much money a person was likely to make in their life, lifetime, and, and the statistical likelihood of that being true is some amount greater than 50%, which is enough for a civil case. And then if now they've got this disability and you can calculate the statistics of how much less time that person was going to work as a result of now having this disability and make, do the difference of those two numbers, and that's essentially where you come up with that lost future earnings capacity number. Is that about right? What you said is exactly correct. Um, and look, the process is actually simple. Uh, it's a four-step, uh, five-step process. So first, the first step is to figure out what is that person's annual earning capacity before the accident. The second step is, okay, how much? Then the second step is how long? How long was that person going to work? How long was that 45-year-old union carpenter going to work who was making you know, $85,000 a year. And now they have a low back fusion. And now it's questionable, A, number one, whether they can do carpentry work. Usually that puts them out of the game. And B, what can they earn now that they need to switch to a different occupation, which is going to be substantially less than what they were earning as carpenters, which they've invested all of their lives and work skills to do. And how long are they going to work now that they have this injury? In all likelihood, it's going to be less than they were going to work without a lower back fusion. And you're correct that in order to make this assessment, we need to use data. And what I do, what we do in our firm is a totally data-driven approach. We look at Census Bureau data that is, by the way, the gold standard for all kinds of actuarial projections in terms of um, ability to work, uh, participation in the labor force, employment numbers. I mean, if you look, if you you pay attention to the unemployment numbers that come every month in the news that they say the unemployment went up or it went down, that comes from Census Bureau data that is collected every month. And so those are the same sources that we use in order to make projections of work-life expectancy, which are widely accepted in the United States as valid projections, because you have to project 
what a person is going to work with and without a disability. And the difference between the two is your damages. And, and the other little tidbit, that's, I, I sort of enjoy this part of it because I, I would not have thought of it, but for the fact that you told it to me a while back, is that that chunk that the person is not going to work now is on the tail end of their career, right? When they retire early, let's say they retire five years early from whatever they were, gonna, they were doing, those are their last five years of their work life. That's when people make statistically the most money they're ever going to make is at the end of their careers. They're, they've reached the highest level of whatever they were going, they were doing, and they were making the most money. So you get to figure out about how much money that person was likely going to be making every year going into the future, and then subtract the last five years or the last however many years, which is usually a pretty big number because that's, that's those highest uh, earning years, right? That is exactly correct. I mean, most Americans make the most money between ages 45 and 65. That is 90% of Americans, that's when they earn the most um, because of an accumulation of education, training, and experience. And just to put it in terms of uh, professional, like a lawyer, uh, a first-year lawyer doesn't make the same as a lawyer with 10 years of experience, who doesn't make the same as a lawyer with 20 years of experience. Are there exceptions to that rule? Yes, but they are the exception rather than the rule. The rule is, the more experience you have, the more money you make. So when you have somebody who has been a carpenter for 25 years since age 20 at 45, that person is making the most money right then and there and can reasonably expect to earn even more because of his uh, experience. Now, um, when they end up retiring early uh, because of an injury that occurred 10, 15 years prior, uh, that's what needs to be considered because they don't, not only do they not see out the rest of his, their work life, but also they may even get a lower pension, like if you have a union pension, for example. So that's very critical to think about when you think of damages, when you think of individuals who have serious uh, uh, you know, problems that limit their functional ability. But the functional ability is something that I wanted to talk about in case there are medical providers out there who are uh, involved in personal uh, injury cases. And there are, and they're, they're listening right now. So the, I, I sort of want to talk about the, the types of things that you use chiropractors reports for when you're going through your analysis and what you think are, you know, what, what, what you pull out of there as being particularly helpful uh, in terms of evaluating both past loss earnings as well as future lost earning capacity. Yes, uh, a medical treatment is very important for us because to be honest with you, it is the medical treatment that is the foundation for my analysis. Keep in mind that if somebody breaks a leg and they get 100% back and they have no functional limitation, that person is likely not to have uh, loss of earning capacity because they're back to, to normal. Uh, so that person is as good as new. And by the way, that happens a lot. And, and chiropractors and physical therapists do amazing work with individuals who have injuries and they restore them back to health and they get back to work. And that's not the kinds of clients that I see. Uh, those, those clients move on with their lives. You may see them uh, in your practice because you represent them. Uh, but if they return to full uh, gainful, full functional ability, 
with ability to stand unrestricted, walk unrestricted, bend and stoop unrestricted, lift and carry unrestricted, then they likely won't have a loss of earning capacity. The cases that I see are serious cases where the individual, despite all the medical treatment, remains problematic, remains with, with pain. Sometimes the pain is chronic and everybody knows in the medical field that after night, uh, six months of pain, you can be defined as having chronic pain. Uh, and those individuals are going to be affected in their ability to work. Documenting uh, a level of pain in your treating records and even in your final report indicating the individual still has pain, still has limitations with mobility, still has limitations with ability to lift and carry, individuals who then get evaluated for a functional capacity, maximal uh, ability. And when chiropractors, physical therapists, or orthopedic doctors give actually uh, estimates of functionality, like they can sit and stand, I'm sorry, they can stand for up to an hour unrestricted, but then they have to sit. They can walk for an hour, but then they have to sit. They can sit for an hour, but then they have to stand. That information is extremely, extremely valuable to then apply that to the world of work. Because if you're a person who works standing all day, but you only have a maximal ability to stand one hour in an eight-hour workday, or you have to stand one hour and then you have to sit for one hour and alternate and maybe half and half, that has a huge impact on your choice of career, on your choice of employment, and your ability to work. And when um, doctors, chiropractors, and physical therapists document this thoroughly, that becomes the foundation for the analysis. So you, you, so I mean, you know, not to overstate the obvious, but you, you actually get in into the weeds with these reports. You look at the work restrictions that are put in by chiropractors, by physicians, by uh, the different uh, medical, uh, you know, specialties that that see patients, and then use that to figure out, statistically speaking how uh, degraded their future uh, work prospects are as a result of those limitations. Absolutely. And think of this, um, now that you remind me of something very critical. I, I grew up in the work, workers' compensation field, and I came out of that world. And in that world, doctors, uh, chiropractors, and physical therapists tend to give work restrictions every single time they see the client and they put out these limitations, client can only stand and walk for four hours, client can only work for four hours, even if they have a sit down job, things like that. Uh, but in the PI world, you don't see that. And that is a missing link because just because a doctor didn't say that this person has limitation doesn't mean that they don't exist. I get asked a lot of questions about that. And they say, well, Dr. So-and-so didn't say that this person is limited. Why are you saying that they're going to have a problem going forward? And what I have to say about that is, well, the person is indicating that they have problems with this, you know, and they, then they had a lower back fusion. So there's a basis for that. But because it wasn't documented by the treating doctors, because the treating doctors are more concerned with restoring them to full health rather than... Um, giving work restrictions in the workers' compensation system, they forgot and they do not indicate that this person has limitations. Those typically will come out in a, in a personal injury case 
in a deposition, maybe retaining attorney will ask the treating doctor as well, did, does this person have limitations? Where are they? Are they permanent? And permanency of impairment is key in, in, in the foundation for loss of earning capacity going forward, because if you're going to have temporary restrictions that could be lifted, then that's a game changer. So the difference between temporary and permanent uh, limitations is very critical, and it needs to be documented in the reports. So that's an incredibly important point. And from the legal standpoint, I want to make sure I highlight part of it and, and, and even expand. The documenting the, the work restrictions, period, is, is important, period. Absolutely. Do- documenting the, uh, the, the permanence of those work restrictions, even more you know, important in, in what you do. And I'll, I'll even add on to that, that making sure that the work restrictions that you're documenting and the work restriction permanence that you're documenting is consistent across the different medical subspecialties that a patient sees is similarly critical because the defense will use that as a, as, as a, as a vein, as a way to get in and, 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 and cause havoc with, with a report. They'll say, well, the chiropractor said, no, you know, that they can, they can sit for four hours a day but the orthopedist said they can sit for five to seven hours a day. And the pain management specialist said that they can only, uh, they can only sit for two hours a day. So, you know, what, Mr. Vega, what did you, uh, you know, what, which did you use and why did you pick that random, you know, report? So consistency in these things is incredibly important. Um, and because chiropractors are the quarterback of a lot of that treatment, I think it's so important that they themselves are the ones, A, starting that train of documenting uh, the, the, um, the work restrictions and the permanent work restrictions, and then making sure that the, the new reports that come in, A, have that noted, and B, are consistent with their findings. And if they're not making sure that they correspond with that doctor to, to clear up any inconsistencies, because when it comes to you, it's over. I mean, they, they can't go backwards and write some supplement. I've seen that happen or where they try to go back and write a supplement. No, no, I, I only took them off work for one day, but in, you know, now in reality, they were off work for six months and it was all related to the accident. Well, that's going to be a problem. Yes. Um, and, and what I have to say is that when you have different estimates of somebody's functional ability, measurements win the day. And in that respect, I think, physical therapists and also chiropractors are really well positioned to measure that. They can actually do measurements of ability to lift, ability to carry, ability to bend and stoop and stand and walk. And they can write that down with specificity in their reports. By the time that a pain management doctor or a orthopedic surgeon uh, gets uh, to treat this person and they may uh, release them with limitations, they may be guessing uh, what the limitations are. And I'm not saying that the doctors guess, but they're trying to be reasonable when they say this person shouldn't lift this many pounds, but they have not measured the client's ability to do that. Uh, the ones who do that are the physical therapists and the chiropractors. Um, they tend to believe in measurements and they measure it from session to session to see what the progress is. So if at the end of the day, there are actual measurements in the, in the file, that's what wins the day and, 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 and has more credibility in the eyes of uh, you know, a group of 12 jurors. They'll say, well, that doctor there conducted measurements. This other doctor just gave an estimate. 
kind of like a best guess, so, so, so to speak. So that's why it's important uh, as far as I am concerned that um, the functional ability of the client is spelled out in as much detail as possible. And to that end, we, we could take even a step backward into the beginning and, and to say, well, when, when, a, when a new patient comes in and a chiropractor is doing intake, what, what kinds of things, should, like specifically, should they be looking out for when it comes to you know, well-documenting and setting up the future uh, lost earnings claim that's coming? Uh, because I think that, you know, that they, they're, they're off, poor chiropractors, they're tasked with making sure that they, they look at the entire body holistically, emotional injuries, and now we're adding on uh, economic injuries. But, but if there were a couple of things that you could say, okay, new patient comes in, check for these couple of things, because that's really a good litmus test for whether or not there's going to be a good lost future earnings claim or not. Can you, can you kind of give us some of those? Absolutely. And, and I think, look, chiropractors and physical therapists and doctors in general, they just want to help the individual, right? Their, their number one thing is to help the person to restore them back to health. And that's their number one uh, goal. And that's what they focus uh, a lot. And, and that's the way it should be. But another uh, thing that is equally important to restoring them back to health is to understand what is their background? How much education and work experience do they have? It's very different to treat somebody with a sixth grade education from Mexico than it is to treat somebody with a master's degree in the United States. Those are big difference changes uh, in the ability to work that a, say a back injury or a knee injury is going to have. The person with a master's degree in a knee injury could continue to work without any kind of skipping the beat, so to speak, in their job, whereas the person with a sixth grade education has had a history of physically demanding jobs, and that knee injury is going to cause severe problems in their ability to earn a living. So understanding the client's background, education, and work is important as is to document whether the client returned to work, is working with and without uh, limitations or restrictions or part-time versus full-time. Maybe they're working only four hours a day. Maybe they're only working six hours a day. That needs to be documented on those treating records as the therapist or, or chiropractor sees the clients the week in and week out. They should be documenting whether the client is working or not and whether there are some limitations or restrictions uh, that, uh, that the client has. And at the very end, when you're done with treatment, say whether the limitations or restrictions have been lifted and they can return to full duty or if they have actual problems going forward. So, okay, so so background of work, background of education sound like initial questions that they should be asking and uh, trying to make sure that stuff is documented in initial reporting um, and, and using uh, to sort of red flag for the attorney, hey, this might be a, a lost earnings, lost future earnings. That's right. I mean, uh, yeah, keep in mind that if a chiropractor does good work or a physical therapist does good work and they restore the person back to health, that there may not be a... Uh, uh, functional restrictions going forward because they restored them back to health. And there's a lot of cases like that. Um, I only see the serious cases where there are ongoing problems even after treatment was rendered. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But, but just the, the um, uh, physical uh, or manual laborers jobs uh, is probably a red, you know, something that would be a tip off. Uh, lower levels of education, probably a tip off. These are things that at the initial level that might 
tip off a chiropractor that, hey, there may be an LOE, there might be a lost future earnings issue with this case that I should, I should make sure I, I flag and uh, note uh, work restrictions uh, more carefully in a case like that. Um, and then again, like you're saying, following up at the end, making sure that that's all well-documented in the final report, as well as obviously the permanence of these, of these things so that you can then do your job uh, and, 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 and note all that stuff for-, for uh, that, That's correct. The, the more documentation of the progress of the client is noted vis-a-vis -vis their ability to work, the better for all the parties, for all the parties uh, you will be because there's clarity as to what has gone on. Um, because, you know, if you have somebody with a knee injury that requires surgery and they're trying to rehabilitate that knee, but they work in construction and they have to lift upwards of 50 pounds or more, that may be contraindicated. This person's going to get injured again, typically when they're stressing out that knee. Whereas if you have a sit down job, that may not be the case. Although uh, knee problems tend to be problematic if you sit for a long time, because you also get uh, the static of the knee not being, the blow not circulating, that gets to be problematic too. And I've heard a lot of clients say, well, if I sit for too long, I have a lot of pain too, I have to get up. But it may be less of an issue for somebody with an office job as it would be for somebody with a construction or outdoors job. Sure. Mr. Vega, uh, or Dr. Vega, as uh, Sean promoted you earlier. Well, Sean gave you a little promotion and title there when he was here. Uh, I want to thank you for, for doing this, for being here. It was, uh, it was really an honor to speak with you. And I, I know that everybody listening uh, really took something away from this. Um, I want to flag a couple of things uh, for people who are, are watching. Um, I know that it's last minute and it's today, but we are doing our first in-person seminar. Uh, it's something real light. It's here in Seal Beach uh, tonight after hour six to eight. Um, if you can make it, if you've got nothing going on, uh, check out seanskill.com slash events. You can see it's only like 10 bucks and we're donating it to charity. But uh, if you got some time, you want to come out, uh, I invite you to do that. Um, this podcast, as well as every other podcast we've done, is going to be uh, up uploaded to iTunes. You can check out, go to iTunes ch podcast, check out Sean Steele Law Firm. Uh, you'll find our podcast there. Uh, and we also have the YouTube channel, Sean Steele Law Firm YouTube channel that has all of these updated uh, uploaded as well as all of our little uh, little tips and tricks that Sean and I post. Um, and so I just want to flag that for anybody listening. Um, and also uh, Sean gave his email address, which I would admit is easier than mine to remember. It's seansteel at seansteel.com. Uh, mine is Alexander Eisner at seansteel.com, slightly longer, but that's just the nature of my name. Um, and you can always reach out to either one of us with any questions that you have. Um, Mr. Vega, thank you so, so much for doing this. We really, really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.